chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, and then Nick will be straight up to preach. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, nice, uh, nice half-term sort of weekend, really, isn't it? Right, well, as uh, we are doing a review of, of Philippians 1 and 2 this morning, which I've called Healthy Christian, Healthy Church. And I'm going to ask you a question if you're a Christian here this morning. When you first became a believer, what changes did that entail for you? And how big a step did you think you were taking? In the UK, we have a Christian heritage. Our culture is largely Christian, and we can be rather culturally desensitized to the radical change that becoming a Christian is for many, and fail to understand the real impact it has on others for whom it really is quite a tumultuous experience and upheaval. Many years back, I got to know, or Kim and I got to know, a Pakistani Muslim convert who I'm going to call uh, Tariq just to uh, uh, protect him uh, if he's still under threat. Uh, now, for him and his wife, uh, turning to Christ was a costly and dangerous business. Their wider family disowned them, cut them off from a considerable fortune and from their jobs, from all their income. Uh, and even threatened to send hitmen to finish them off and punish them for their apostasy to Islam. But you know what? None of that deterred them from the joys of their new life and their new hope in Jesus Christ. Such was the wonderful liberation of the gospel. It was very much a prize worth holding on to. Now, one day, as I went to Bible study in London, uh, we heard that uh, Tarek had uh, been going up and down his local London high street telling all the Muslim traders about Jesus. And some of these fellows had become extremely angry and called the police. Uh, and Tarek found himself arrested uh, to prevent further trouble. And as a colleague of mine asked at the time, so tell me, Nick, when was the last time you were arrested for telling people about Jesus Christ? Hmm, good question. Um, but the thing is, Tariq himself would just shrug off the incident. Nothing was going to prevent him from offering the same joy he'd found in Christ to other people, even grumpy uh, Muslim shop owners. Now, the New Testament's Apostle Paul also had a dramatic and costly conversion on the Damascus Road. And his remaining life showed us very much this same drive and attitude as Tariq. 
a man driven to share the gospel, undaunted by really very serious setbacks, any one of which could be expected uh, to break the resolve of any person. Well, Paul, along with Silas and Timothy, had started the church community in in Philippi. uh, And as they shared the gospel, they had a great start. They were heartened to find a warm and welcome, uh, a warm welcome from some very eager listeners. But their activities also quickly resulted them being uh, brought before the magistrates, being charged as troublemakers. And they found themselves being physically flogged and shackled in prison. Now, just imagine that for a moment. You're trying to tell somebody about Jesus, only to find yourself ending up in a prison cell, treated roughly, staring at a blank wall for your troubles. I mean, if it were me, I think I'm pretty sure I'd, uh, I'd become rather grumpy with God for allowing such a situation when I was just trying to do my best to, to, to tell the gospel for him. And I'd probably uh, keep my mouth shut for fear of anything worse happening. But in Paul's case, the prison that night was struck by an earthquake. But under Paul's guidance, not one prisoner escaped, much to the relief of the jailer. You see, he must have already enthralled his fellow inmates with the gospel to the point that they implicitly trusted him. What's more, Paul then told that much-relieved jailer about Jesus too. And that night, the jailer and his whole family were brought to faith in Christ. He, Silas, and Timothy were promptly released from jail and allowed to continue their gospel work unhindered. A door was opened. So something motivated and drove Paul and kept his spirits up, even in jail. And in God's governance, that never-give-in attitude opened the door for the gospel work in Philippi. And Paul got to see and got to have the joy of seeing this young church grow and thrive. You see, God can do the most remarkable things in any and every situation, fair weather or foul. It doesn't matter so long as we who carry his gospel message remain motivated, faithful to our Lord Jesus and to the task he set us. Now, years later, as Paul writes this letter from prison, uh, you know, he is in prison again. But his cheerful vigor and his resolve haven't waned one bit. He's still busy ministering the gospel. He knows that God can work miracles of new life even from inside his jail cell. After all, he'd experienced it in Philippi. Well, today we are reviewing these first two chapters, and it gives us an opportunity to sort of zoom out and appreciate the broader brushstrokes after a couple of months of of, uh, detailed passage-by-passage study. And uh, we're going to look at it under three headings. Firstly, facing the odds. 
uh, looking at an uncompromising look, uh, mission field, that that is actually perfectly normal. But of course, the mission field is ripe for harvest. And then from facing the odds, we go to Paul's secret source. What drove him and can do the same for us? And lastly, the benefits and uh, wonders that flow from a life lived in Christ's service. So firstly, facing the odds. In uh, chapter 4 of John's Gospel, Jesus tells the disciples this, Open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. You see, Jesus expects every local church, including us in Christ Church Bulldog, right now to go out and make disciples for him. Now, you, you can just imagine some wag responding to Jesus, can't you? Uh, really? Have you uh, looked at Bulldog and North Arts recently? Looks pretty unpromising to me. That's nothing new. Paul had exactly the same problems in Philippi, didn't he? The city became an ancient colon, uh, Roman colony in uh, 42 BC and was fashioned deliberately as a mini-Rome in Greece. The emperor Augustus had imposed a huge number of Roman uh, veterans there to be colonists. And this created a sort of a ratio of Roman to Greek of something like 40 to 60. And a Roman culture was very much superimposed onto a Greek city. By contrast, the Jewish influence there was tiny. I mean, so much so, they'd never been able to find the ten men required to form a synagogue. So it hardly looked like fertile ground for the gospel message or even for a church to sustain itself, caught as it was between two such strong cultures, both ill-disposed towards Christianity. The church was in effect a little island uh, of believers in a pagan city that was itself an island of Rome in a sea of Greek culture. I mean, you have to sympathise with the church members, don't you, to some extent? The gospel challenge they faced there looked pretty daunting. What well, does that sound familiar? I mean, it's not that much different in Baldock, is it? We too are, in some ways, a tiny island of believers trying to plant gospel seeds in communities like North Hart, where, which are typical of modern, secular and pluralistic culture. Mostly unreceptive, dismissive or even hostile to Jesus and to his church. Like my friend Tarek out on the high street, you never know when the community is going to bite back or even if they're going to listen in the first place. I mean, it's terrific when everything's chugging along nicely and people are receptive to what we say, but what about when you're facing resistance like Paul did from the pagan community in Philippi? It doesn't seem so easy, does it, then, to remain vital faithful as a community, proclaiming Christ to the outsider and teaching him to the insider. But Paul's point's this, there is no such thing as an, as an unpromising mission field for the gospel. 
Because it's God's power that's doing the work. Now, one thing to bear in mind as we read over these first two chapters is this. Paul is always talking in this very personal letter about you. And invariably, it's the plural form, as in you all. Underneath everything that's taught is the idea of community with shared purpose to which everyone in the congregation is committed doing their bit, whatever it is, within the body of Christ. And we know that everything that we do in service to this church is vital, however insignificant it might seem to you. It's what in chapter 1, verse 5, Paul calls partnership in the gospel. Now, if each person in a congregation grasps the secret of Paul, uh, uh, that Paul tells us about what drives him and his colleagues, then what results is a real powerhouse of a church congregation, where that unpromising mission field begins to look like a piece of cake. When things get tough, we have the mutual support of each other, don't we? And as we said, it's actually God who's going to do all the really heavy lifting to win converts anyway. All right, so let's move on from talking about the mission field to Paul's, what I've called Paul's secret source. Now, chapters one and two of the letter are uh, built around a poetic portrait that we find in chapter two, uh, verses six to 11, which I chose as today's text, um, it's a character portrait of the ministry of Jesus and how he himself drew people into God's kingdom, experiencing exactly the same difficulties and opposition we do. Actually, he got it worse. And Paul says in this letter, I model myself on Jesus. It's what made him the giant figure he was. And he encourages us to model ourselves on him in our turn. And he introduces the uh, portrait with the words of verse 5, which we also read out this morning, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. Now, it's this word mind or mindset that's the springboard of the letter's teaching in many ways. This is Paul's secret source for healthy Christian and a healthy church. One perfectly capable of winning people for Jesus, whatever the challenges, even in the unpromising mission field of Bulldog. The meaning of the word mind is as in our attitudes, to think the same way, to be mindful of the same things. Do you know, Paul wrote 13 of the New Testament letters, and he mentions this, con uh, this idea of attitude or mindfulness 23 times. Ten of them are in Philippians. It's a really strong idea here. 
It all starts in the mind of the individual believer as they equip themselves by reading the scripture, studying it and learning from Jesus' word. And as this happens, so the mind of Christ grows and blossoms, bringing spiritual maturity, another key theme that we find in these chapters. And in 2, 6 to 8, copying Christ's mind, we see, brings humility and obedience and a commitment to service. It's a very high calling, and it's costly, But as we then see in verses 9 to 11, it brings the ultimate prize of justification and the glory of heaven. It's well worthwhile. Now around this central um, portrait of Christ, Paul constructs his letter with a series of vignettes or short illustrations. And they're either about uh, circumstances or or ideas or individuals. And each vignette gives us an application to show how to live as a Christ-shaped believer, ready and able to respond to any situation. Uh, Chapter 1, 3 to 26 and 2, 25 to 30 is when you're happy or when you're in distress. Then there's when you're being slandered, when you're imprisoned and isolated for Christ, being Christ's person, or perhaps even praised for being Christ's person. Uh, Chapter 1, 12 to 26. Then in uncertainty and in uncertainty, 1, 27 to 30. And there's also the ideas of when you're in authority and under authority, and when you're alone or in a team. And then there's the individual portraits. Paul gives us his own example throughout the letter. And then in 2, 19 to 30, that of Timothy and Epaphroditus, his fellow workers. But everything must flow to the whole church membership. That what is said about these individuals is applicable and true to the, to, for the whole of the local church community, to you all. That's why the portrait in in chapter 2 is prefaced with the paragraph about one mind, one love, one spirit. It's actually worth reading. So uh, chapter 2, verse 2. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, one mind, having the same love, one love, being one in spirit, one spirit, and one mind. Yeah? Very, very key. It's confidence building, isn't it? And it's all leading up to an amazing statement in chapter 4, verse 13, where Paul says, you know, I can do all things through Christ because he strengthens me. Remember, he's saying this from prison. And after many a beating, many a trial, many abuses, and many many challenges, the like of which is hard enough for anyone to endure. His poverty and persecution are not negative, however. He's learned dependence and contentment, living out a life modelled 
on Jesus. Being so Jesus-focused, that's all he wants. Knowing him, you see, is always a deeply transforming, personal encounter. And despite all the lows, Paul can say in Romans 8, 28, and we know in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Well, as my daughter Tamsin reminded me earlier this week, you know, people often forget to cite the rest of that uh, verse, don't they? Where we find this qualification, that it's only for those called according to his purpose. Well, what's that purpose? I think we could say, in context of the letter in Philippians, that it's the mind of Christ. The character of Christ, his agenda, what's important to him, his priorities, his attitude, his service to God the Father's great plan of salvation, and for the glory of salvation itself. And it's all found, isn't it, in the person of Jesus Jesus is the gospel. The gospel is Jesus. All right, so let's move on to the benefits that flow from all this. The slogan, what would Jesus do, has been very popular ever since it made its first appearance out of the social gospel movement in the late 1800s. Uh, if you're like me, you've probably had a wristband, a T-shirt or mug with this slogan emblazoned on it at, at some point. And the idea is very simple. It's to make us stop and think and act in a biblical way. Now, I wonder what, uh, what the Apostle Paul would make of it. I mean, it certainly helps get across the big driving point of this letter to be of the same mind and attitude of Christ. And there are two main benefits that flow from having this mind of Christ in these, these, uh, these uh, chapters, according to Paul. They are maturity uh, on the one hand, and then trust and joy on the other. So firstly, maturity. At the start of the letter, in 1, 3 to 11, Paul prays that, that, that Christians should grow into spiritual maturity with its features of fellowship and partnership, knowledge and discernment, and blameless purity, all to glorify God. Uh, maturity is surely, is it not, the point at which we've learned to deal with all that life gives us as Christians both the smooth and the rough and tumble, with calm assurance and wisdom. And what's the key to unlocking Christian maturity? Well, it, it has to be this mind of Christ. If we learn to see the world as Christ sees it, love people as Jesus loves them, give ourselves to gospel work as he gave himself, follow his agenda then that is maturity to cope with all things and lead a life that is full of joy, which we'll talk about in a minute. Now, in this letter, Paul doesn't, surprisingly to me, 
uh, talk about the church being like a, a human body or a, a, a building, which he does in, in, in other letters. But I think he's still at pains to, to, um, to get across that same idea. You see, we all should have a shared mind, have su uh, supportive unity and a common purpose. The local church has to have cohesiveness, the same as that of a human body, to function as intended. And the thing is this, a body can only have one head, and a head can only have one mind. And for the church, that must be the mind of Jesus Christ. It's what Paul tells us, actually, in Colossians 1, verse 18. Now, if this is true of the local church, then as its Christians reach maturity, there will be a merging unity of thinking. Does that sound surprising to you? Well, why? Because we have the one mind of Christ. Paul's going to allude to that in chapter 3, verse 15. He knows that is what Christian maturity does and should do. And in 2, verse 2, he pleads for this like-minded maturity to be the goal of everyone in the church. Now, you're never going to know what Jesus would do and how he thinks if you skimp on reading and studying the Bible. In German, the word to know somebody personally is kennenlernen, literally to learn to know. It describes Paul's point very well. Then there's uh, the experience, isn't there, of a life lived with Jesus as Lord? And it's both these things, this learning Christ and then experiencing that bring us to the maturity that Paul is talking about. The process is perfectly normal to, to even non-Christians. After all, we send children to school to learn. It might be chemistry, music, math, science, languages, whatever. Yet each of these, along with the socialising and cooperation that we learn at school, is what makes Christi children grow into mature adults. And then they go on to serve in medicine, industry, finance, government, technology, all the things that make for a successful, properly functioning society. Now you'll remember from when we were doing 1 Peter, when you become a Christian, you are born again into the kingdom of God, like babes craving uh, newborn milk. But this, this new kingdom is quite different for us. It's a new uh, citizenship, a new beginning. So we have to go back to school to learn and mature all over again in a new way in order to enrich both our individual life of faith and that of the sub-society that is the local church. Yeah, we grow into maturity we grow into the mind of Christ. We grow into Christ. Well, very quickly, out of this 
Christian maturity comes these marks. Firstly, trust. Maturity is implicit trust of Jesus in all situations, good, bad, and downright awful. And secondly, joy. Maturity in Christ brings deep joy. And we need only scan this letter to see the deep joy that is in Paul's own heart. It's bursting out of this letter. It just jumps out everywhere. And Paul gives us five different Greek words of joy to express emotion in this letter. And it's mentioned at least 15 times, 10 of which are in these first two chapters. This is not a fleeting burst of happiness. You know, the sort of, uh, you know, the fun that the world offers us. Ultimately empty and unsatisfying. No, this is a, a profound contentment. It's a real peace of mind. And so powerful is it, it transcends all trials and tribulations. Well, as if maturity, trust and joy were not enough. What is it and where is it that we're going ultimately? There is the prize of heaven for the believer who sticks the course, who keeps going. And that too is a sign of maturity. So let's be serious, shall we, about this mind of Christ business. It's not just Paul's secret source. In fact, it's not secret at all. It's a secret for all of us. To the truth, to the life, and the way that it's our Lord Jesus. Shall we pray? I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that for Christ Church, for each one of us, and for us as a congregation of people belonging one to the other. Lord, we know we are often daunted by that mission field, but let us not be. Let us somehow see it as Paul and Silas and Timothy did, how Jesus did, and to learn from them and from the Lord Jesus to have that maturity and that joy in going out and sharing this wonderful news about you to all those hurting, lost people out there. Amen.